Hi, welcome to Superheroes of Science. This episode, we got the privilege of talking with a Purdue alum who is an environmental scientist. Yes, Kayla Cotterman joined us this week to talk about factors related to engineering and developing, um, and especially as those factors are related to water. Yeah, she looks at uh, wetlands, looking for wetlands. Mm -hmm. She looks at runoff, hey, development will impact runoff. Then we got to talk, we got, you know, sidetracked like we always do. We got to talk about a lot of other things related to water. Yeah. So tune in. Hopefully you enjoy this as much as we did. Thank you. Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we're so excited to welcome Kayla Cotterman. Kayla is an environmental scientist with the Locke Mueller Group. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so an environmental specialist. Environmental no, scientist. Envir envir oh, so many big words. Envir an environmental scientist. What, I guess my first question is, what is an environmental scientist? Uh, so we look at um, a variety of aspects like related to water and nature and like natural systems and how humans can impact those. Okay. Wow. And you, uh, what type of, uh, I, I guess, I, I know this is running down a rabbit hole we didn't necessarily want to go, but you've already met us and talked to us for a couple minutes. You realize that happens. And uh, you can go like past next question too. Yes. But <laughs> that's always an option. But the Lockmere group, what, what is that? What type of, what type of person hires an environmental scientist? What, or oh, not yeah. person, what type of that's group, what type of group would hire an environmental scientist, I guess? Sure. So this is actually an engineering firm, um, but in order to do construction or um, look at issues that are happening, uh, you need someone with an environmental science background to say like, hey, this is wetlands, we can't disturb this, or hey, I need a map of this area and show me, please show me roads and like elevation contours and find the different land use types. Um, so I do, I do that sort of stuff. I do a lot of work with GIS, Geographic Information Systems, mm -hmm. and making maps. Um, and that's probably where my, my real passion is. I guess awesome. I should have guessed that with where you're going, especially working in an engineering place, that GIS was probably your jam. Yes, uh, it's very much my jam, yeah. But Well, that's awesome. Now, I know the, was it water? Well, I know it was water. Um, what was the words we were going to talk about? Um, global water security. Yes, global water security. Yeah. What is that? So that, that can mean a lot of different things um, when you think about water security. So for many people, they think of fresh water, access to drinking water. And, and absolutely, globally, there are still people every day that struggle with getting fresh water. We don't realize how lucky we are that most of us can just go to the kitchen and turn a faucet on and we have clean water. So that's, that, that's one aspect of global water security. Another one would be our water like reserves, like groundwater. You know, farmers um, sometimes will pump water for the irrigation to help the, the crops grow. And that's great if the water recharges, um, which it does well here in the Midwest, but other places like in the High Plains, they're pumping out way more water than what's being recharged. So looking down the road, they're going to have serious, serious crop growth issues if they keep relying on irrigation. Now, also, if you think about like dams out west too that provide hydropower, a lot of those reservoirs, like they've been in the news lately, um, and they're really shrinking as well. Now, in um, 
I, I'm not 100% sure if it's jargon. I think for some people, when we talk about recharge rates of a particular area, it might be jargon. So can we go ahead and explain when we're talking about a like a water a water um, a water system? I, I know it's not the word. Um, no, was there or a water table? Or? No, it's bigger. Watershed. Oh, watershed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, when we talk about a watershed, we talk about a recharge rate for something. What uh, could you explain what those mean? Sure. A recharge rate is like when the rain falls, how much rain is into the ground, into like deeper layers that can be stored for later use, not just the top layer of soil moisture, but it's farther down into the earth. And how long does it usually take for water to recharge? Sure, and that depends on a lot of factors. How often does it rain? How much are you pumping? And what type of soil do you have? So here in the Midwest, where we get you know quite a lot of rain, um, and our soils are fairly permeable, we have pretty decent recharge rates. But you take the high plains like Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas. You know those farmers are pumping out a significant amount more of water than what's being recharged, their recharge rate is about two to five millimeters per year. So that's like, what, a quarter of an inch, yeah. half an inch, not, not very much. So what's going to happen? I mean, it's, they're pumping the water out a lot faster mm -hmm. than it's going back. Two question, what's going to happen if they continue this? And my next question is, well, where did the water go? Sure. So their well is going to run dry. And then they can either dig a deeper well, which will cost more money to dig. It'll cost more money to pump it up because now you have to pump it up farther. So their energy bills are going to increase. And then at some point that well will run, will run dry and they'll have to dig a deeper well. Um, and at some point you can't dig, that will be, that will be it. Mm -hmm. So then if, if you run out of water that way, you can switch to a crop that relies less on water. Because right now, a lot of them are planting corn, which is very water dependent. And they could switch to a cotton or something that's less water dependent. However, um, that's going to impact the money that the farmer makes because, you know, corn is worth more than cotton right now. And who knows what will be later on. Um, that's something that the farmer would have to consider, which is why they continue to, to irrigate because you, just, you get better yields, you get more money. So it, it, uh, that leads to so many questions. I can't get them all out because uh, I'm thinking, first of all, if if, uh, if someone comes in and they're pumping out of a well and if I, my well is shallower, then all of a sudden they draw down the water table or where the maximum amount of water is, the highest it goes, they would draw down the water table. And so someone else could, I mean, they, your they water? Run my well dry, so I don't have well water at all then. Absolutely. Water wars is a thing. And in fact, the state of Kansas and Nebraska are suing each other over the Platte River. I, I believe those are the two states. Um, maybe Colorado was in there as well. There are some states out um, in the plains that are suing each other due to water rights. And different places have different rules. Like some, some place the rule is first come, first get. So if you're if you're the person that you pump it out and you pump it out first, then then that's yours. Some have set limits like, okay, you can only pump, you know, six inches, 12 inches. I don't know what it is. You can only pump so much and then you're done. And then you have to follow those rules. 
there's one place in Kansas and a group of farmers have come together in their community and they're working together to keep their pumps going. Um, they've created their own little co-op um, to try to you know, preserve the water and preserve the natural system for future generations of farmers to come along. Um, and, and that's great that, that they can come and do that. I wish that everywhere had that kind of cooperative spirit. And so are there, I mean, legal, I mean, let's say someone a half mile from me decided they were going to do something that required a lot of water. Mm -hmm. Is there anything legally that I would do or am I just out of luck? Because if they decided to pump it out and I couldn't get water then. Well, that's a good question. You probably need to go to your county commissioner. I'm sure that there's a permit or something, depending upon where you live. I'm sure there there is restrictions. Um, yeah, you would have to go talk to some some government official, get some paperwork. I don't know what all it entails. Mm -hmm. That in, did that impact your job? How where you guys work yeah. with an engineering firm? Do you have to take that into account then? The number of wells that are there and the drawdown. So we don't we don't look at wells, but we do look at um, like wetlands. And if someone wants to, you know, build a development but is going to impact wetlands, then that that's an issue. And we have to work with the Indiana Department of Environmental Management (IDEM) to meet their standards. And we have certain rules that we have to meet as well. Like right now, we're trying to put a like a detention basin in because we're getting too much runoff. So runoff is whenever it rains, water that's not soaked into the ground and runs off. And this is really um, prevalent in like impervious surfaces, so like concretes and pavements. So this apartment complex is getting a lot of runoff and it's causing erosion. And so they're needing some type of det detention basin to help catch the water. But one thing the apartment complex is considering is what if they want to expand in the future because there's just a, an empty field that they own. So now they're debating how big of a basin do we want? Do we want to go ahead, go ahead and build a bigger basin? That way when we expand, we're already good? Or do we go with the cheaper option that you know fits it right now? Mm -hmm. But it's a trade-off. Okay. Now, it sounds like laws are up in the air, especially states are suing each other yeah, over water wars, like you said. It sounds like laws are up in the air that. But are there are the laws, um, I want to say, up in the air when it talk, when you start talking about runoff and the amount of impermeable surface that doesn't allow water to go through versus maybe a permeable surface? Are there laws and stuff that regulate what people can and can't do in that area? Yeah, each, I mean, each city, each county, each state is different. They have different guidelines. Um, I know that like NDOT, the Indiana Department of Transportation, they have their own rules whenever they design culverts for roads because, you know, roads are pavement. So it's going to run off into a ditch. And then if your ditch isn't big enough or if your pipe's not big enough and you get a, a rainfall event, you're going to flood. But then that brings us to another issue is you know, we look at rain events based on statistics, but we've only been collecting data for maybe the past hundred years, if we're lucky. And you know that the earth has been here way more than hundred years. So compared to the grand scheme of the earth, our little area of record is, is very small. And we're making very large decisions over a very small time window where hundred years ago, the instrumentation was not as good as it is today. And with climate change impacts, that's changing rain events 
-hmm. So there's a lot of other factors that go into a lot of this design, design and water decision making. With your with your position, and well, what was your degree in that you became an environmental yeah, yeah. scientist first? So my undergrad degree was in atmospheric science, and then that got me real interested in water, specifically like extreme events. Like I was um, I was in school in 2012 when we had like the big drought, yeah. and that got me real interested in oh, what are like you know long term implications? What if this continues? you know, that kind of stuff. And then I went to get my master's in environmental geosciences. And I took that interest of like extreme events to, to my master's program. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. That falls right in. Yeah. Now, when you look at an area, let's say uh, there, there's a field behind my house and let's say mm -hmm. I, I've purchased this and I would like to build a commercial building and contract y'all. What all do, are, are you looking at as the environmental scientist? What all different type of variables do you need to look at to advise or consult with the engineering side? Sure. So I would first look to see um, your land use type. You know, you, you said a field, is it cultivated? Is it pasture? What kind of field? Is it just grass? You know, what kind of field are we looking at? I would look at the elevation because coming from the West Lafayette, Lafayette area, I'm guessing it's pretty flat, which will impact how the water flows. Um, the last thing we want is your building to flood. You know, we want the water draining away from the building. And, the and we also don't want, you know, maybe it's not a flood every time it rains, but a little bit of water off the roof eats away at the ground and a little bit more water. And, you know, but 10 years down the road, you have a big, big problem. Mm -hmm. So I'd look to make sure to get it all kind of like draining, draining away. Yeah. And so once you look at that and you're looking at the natural ground flow, you're looking at elevation, you're looking at all these directions. And do are you also then looking at the water, the seasonal water table for that area? Does that come into play with what you're doing too? Um, I wouldn't look at the water table, but I would definitely look at like the 10 year rain event okay. or like the 10 year one hour. So like what's like a real heavy, heavy rain event mm -hmm. um, in like a short duration, a different kind of kind of rain events like that. How many projects um, as an environmental scientist working for an engineering firm, how many projects do you, are you running at one time? Or I mean, they throw like multiple things at you or you just like look at it and like, okay, yeah, check this off and go the next. Um, no, I have multiple things because sometimes I'll have a model running and while my model's running, then I will go do something else and then I'll check my model and then I'll tweak those parameters and then I'll need to have a meeting with someone to talk about something else. I would say probably two or three projects at a time. Um, but there, there were, you know, one will be a model, one will be using ARC to make a map, one will be writing um, like a summary of like what we did or writing why a community needs grant money to help them update their wastewater treatment plan or, you know, whatever else the community might need. Oh, well, that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Now, I'm surprised yeah. you stayed in your seat because she mentioned a model. Yes. And I expected yeah. you to instant. <laughs> I, I surprised you let her finish before well, you start asking your questions about modeling. <laughs> so go ahead. I know that's okay, what you got. Well, <laughs> so, um, what what types of models are, are you using? I guess I guess to start with. So 
Sure. So right now I've been using EPA Swim, which is a stormwater model. Mm. Um, and I, I just started using it in May. Uh, so I, it's been a, a little bit of a learning curve. Um, but previously I'd used HECRAS, which is a river routing system um, mm. developed by the Corps of Engineers. And um, I've played with ModFlow before. Um, yeah. Okay. And so to, to be able to use those models then, like what sorts of, what, what do you need to be able to get started? Let's, you're assigned a project and, and you know, it's something that you've got to, you've got to run a model for to, to get some data so you can, you know, move on to the next step of that. What, what do you need to be able to begin? Sure. So you need real data, which is very difficult. Um, you, we would think that we would have better data with all the stuff that we have here in the United States, but we just, we don't. <laughs> and so uh, what, the, what we do with modeling is we take the current system of what's happening like in the real world and we plug in parameters to get it to do that in a computer model. And then that is called calibrating. And then once we get a computer model that produces output that is the same as what's happening in the real world or same-ish with our, you know, error estimations and that sort of stuff, then we're able to say, okay, if we change this part in your community, this is how it's going to impact. Or, hey, if you have um, a big rainfall event, your sewer system cannot handle it and you will have sewage out, okay. you know, so it's very critical to get the first step of the model, the calibration correct or as close to correct as you can. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, you need to have data, which is so hard. And in my previous job, I did some overseas work and that's even more difficult than United States stuff. And so I, I completely understand what you're saying. I, I think it would be very difficult to try to get the, especially I, I would think some types of data would be very specific that you would need. And so, and so then trying to source that for one and collect it. Um, do you, do you, have you thought of, do you have any ideas of how in the future we might be able to improve that, that pool of data that we might be able to collect? That's a great question. Um, Indiana does have a really good geospatial library. Um, so that's been, that's been pretty helpful. But a lot of the stuff we do is at the individual community level. And sometimes it's stuff that was done 50, 70, 90 years ago. You know, people 90 years ago couldn't imagine what we have today. You know, how, you know, how are they gonna record that kind of thing? And then with that, um, okay, so maybe someone put in a PVC pipe 90 years ago or an iron pipe or whatever, it's gonna have changed and degraded so much, you know, so it's hard to say like, you know, whenever you're looking at stuff from 90 years ago, what all what all has changed? Is that pipe even there anymore? You know, like you said, what what lands that were there aren't there? You know, we have roads with asphalt now. You know, so part of it's just keeping our data and our communities up to date. So you use you pulling data from like Indiana Map, or is yes. there a big? Yeah, it is okay. All right, we Not use that some of the things we teach. Yes, yes, Indiana Map. Um, and there's one that the IU hosts. And, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to say Indiana Map, they were a big part of that. Yeah. 
And I use um, open topo um, for my elevation. And sometimes I'll use like USGS, just depending upon, because sometimes this is going into the weeds, the elevation isn't good. Like they don't take off the treetops. So then oh. whenever you run your model, your model thinks that your elevation is the top of your trees, oh. which is wrong, completely wrong. Then like you get weird answers. So then you have to go get a different, a different data source. Now, are you looking at mainly overland flow, or are you also, I mean, you pulling in like evapotranspiration rates and all that for the bud water budget? Or okay, no. No, we're doing it's real it's real short term events. Okay. Okay. I just didn't know how deep you had to go with all of that. And my like, holy cow, that would be whew, a lot of data. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, we just do just just rainfall. Okay. So in your background, then, were you, did you have a lot of programming that you had to in your background to be able to do what you like the your what your what your job is now, or did you learn that kind of as your job went along? I definitely learned it as my job went along. I'd never taken programming till I was at Purdue, and then my first class it was a bit of a shock because I just wasn't prepared to think that way. Uh, somehow I pulled out a beat, which I'll never know how, but good job, me, 10 years ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a lot of self-taught, a lot of asking people, honestly, a lot of Google. There are some people that put videos on YouTube and you can watch like how to write an R script, how to make a graph in R, how to get your HECRAS flows to work, how to get your um, Python script in R to produce 50 maps all at once, you know, so People of the internet are great. That's cool. Well, and that, that goes with like the tech industry that we yeah. that we've interviewed talked to. They're they're talking about like you know things in uh, with like especially with tech, it evolves so quickly because the community is building off of each other so quickly, yeah. much faster than what a research level thing could work. And so the information's out there, and you can build on that very quickly now. It's a it's a it's a whole new world we live in. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Hey, I don't. I don't know how I would do my job or have gotten either of my degrees without Google. Mm -hmm. Google taught me so much. YouTube videos and notes people put up there. Like I've, I've learned so much because it's just at my fingertips. And I think that that's sometimes hard, like for maybe my parents' generation and definitely my grandparents, you know, they don't, they don't understand just how much we have available to us at like a click of a button. Definitely. You know, it, I love I love hearing you say that because mm -hmm. I mean you are an environmental scientist. You are working for a, an engineering firm doing this, and yet you don't know everything. Yeah, and you have to find it out. And it is perfectly fine to go to Google and figure that out and have and find that code and things like that. It and that's something that I'm going to be honest. I didn't realize up until the time my son went to college. And he got a degree in cybersecurity, which he will tell you he got a, a degree in Google. Um, he's like so much code. You just Google it, dad, plug it in. You have to mine it, make sure it's okay or whatever. But yeah, I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I had no idea that it was, I mean, it's really, everything is crowdsourced these days is everyone's helping each other do stuff. You can post questions to forums and sometimes people will answer you. Um, so if you, I mean, the problem I'm having now is the model I'm using is pretty small group of people. So there's just not a whole lot of people on the internet that use this model. It's not like intro to Python. 
where there's so much available or intro to R or intro to Arc Pro, Arc GIS, you know, there's so much, but EPA soon has a pretty small user community. Mm -hmm. So that, that is, that is kind of limiting. But I do remember one of the first times I started using Google was in physics 172 and I was so frustrated and I copy and pasted the question into Google and Yahoo answers spelled out every step. And at the end it said boiler up. And I will never forget that for <laughs> as long as I live. <laughs> That's, That's hilarious. Awesome. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. That's there you go. That's uh, boilers tend to put Easter eggs here and there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. that I so love funny. that. Yeah, that's really I cool. I totally uh, lost my track of thought then. <laughs> is there somewhere else God's going to? <laughs> oh, oh, you mentioned um, it's it's a small group of people you talk. Mm -hmm. So, are there conferences in your field that you attend to share and gain information? Um, I've, I've attended AGU, the American Geophysical Union, and AMS, the American Meteorological Society. Um, I've attended both of those conferences um, because I think one thing that I struggled with really until I started working was, you know, science is so siloed, like biology, chemistry, atmospheric science. No, no, that is not at all how the real world works. You know, I'm looking at like natural biological systems, I'm doing statistics, you know, I'm doing environmental stuff, I'm looking at atmospheric and, and rain, you know, it is such, it is all the sciences, it's not just your silo that, that you studied. My guess is, is that that level, you've kind of got to be an expert in all of it, all at once, to be able to then model what you need to do and get the information that you need. You, you at least have to be able to understand when someone talks to you kind of what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to ask the right questions when you need help. And that's one thing I've struggled with with this model was I didn't realize all the levels of things I didn't know until, you know, you start digging in and you're like, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. Oh, wow, there's that, that parameter, you know? So just that like learning curve, but yeah, you have to at least be able to have a conversation or you're never really gonna get anywhere. Mm -hmm. With global water security, I know we had talked a little bit about that at the beginning, and and I felt like that led us to a conversation. We talked a lot about farming, and then um, and with the irrigation, and then that of course naturally led to talking about pumps, you know, wells and, and well pumps, and whether they're for home and or, or maybe larger reservoirs. Are there other factors that that are that are part of that global water security that we didn't talk about that maybe I know we're I'm thinking I'm, I'm a Midwest person so I'm thinking okay that makes sense but not living somewhere else I don't know are there other factors with that global water security sure like out west and the the lakes that are falling rapidly um you know they're having they're concerned about are they going to get enough water for the towns and that's something in the Midwest we don't really we don't think about but that, that's a big issue like the what Bureau of Reclamation and the Army Corps are working together to to figure out what type of water levels they need to keep like Lake Mead at in order for you know I don't I don't remember if it's dam or or what they need it for but they have like a certain level that they need to keep the water at and yeah. that's causing issues and and if you think about it on like a global perspective um you know you could you could weaponize water really um if you have like a river that's dammed and then an adversary decides, you know, what would be fun is to blow up the dam 
And then you have all that water down, you know, coming downstream quickly that could impact all the communities downstream of the river. Or you could have an adversary that takes over the dam and then they're like, you know what, we're just gonna not let water flow at all. And, you know, not let any water to your community. I mean, these are real global water security issues that I don't think a lot of people think about. And we also have to think about from like a food and water perspective, if people aren't getting food and water, if they can't feed their children, that's gonna cause political instability. So who knows what that could lead to? Are they gonna go like raid a neighbor's camp? Are they gonna have a coup against the government? I, I don't know. And when we say security, I think of protection. When I mm -hmm. think of so, mm -hmm. some of security for something protection. And so what all is happening in when we talk because we were saying global water security. Right. So what all is happening to protect water on a on like a global scale? That that's a really good question. Um, and that's some of the work I did at my, my previous job. Um try to head off issues before they start. Try to project like, okay, maybe next year we're going to be in a El Nino or La Nina. And when that mm -hmm. happens, then okay, then this fishing village is impacted. You know, the breadbasket of the United States is impacted. Ukraine and Russia are impacted. You know, China and India, they're impacted. This, So we try to maybe see what's coming to try to head those off. And we also look at other conflicts to see, you know, if there's a war going on, are there gonna be people farming to grow the food? Mm -hmm. Are they gonna have all the able-bodied people fighting the war? You know, is someone gonna come burn someone's cornfield or wheat field down because that's part of their war strategy? You know, are we gonna be able to get supplies to their, to their right places, you know? There's so many, I don't know if I answered your question. Well, kind of, but I'm wondering who is yeah. the we? Yeah, that was, who, that was my question. That, is who is, who, I mean, when I think of anything global, I'm thinking Illuminati. Um, I mean, but I'm like, who is the we? Who's, who's looking out trying to help protect the world's water supply? Right. I feel like I have a real biased view because I work for the Army Corps. So to me, like the Army, but I'm, I'm sure like, the service, the United States service, probably our allies at England and Canada. I don't really know what they're looking at, but they're probably also looking out. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm just to throw in the word Illuminati. Yeah. I mean, after three years of interviews, I finally found somewhere I could throw it in. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't know, maybe like NATO or UNICEF. I don't know. I don't know. Ugh. That, I, I would assume they have committees doing just that. I would think, so. yeah, definitely. But it's something I had never mm -hmm. thought of. I mean, part of it is it's, yeah, we're privileged to live in the Midwest. Absolutely. Where yeah. water's not a problem. My seasonal water table is 21 inches. And uh, so yeah. I, I got water. And so, and I don't foresee myself ever not having water because of that. Right. And so uh, when you're so used to having something, it's easy to forget a bigger picture. It is like it. It almost doesn't make sense. And and I think I've heard it more and more that you know so many years from now, certain cities are. Re I mean, even now, like today, there are large metropolitan areas facing water shortages, and and they're just the water's not there, and people don't know where the what you know how are they managing that, and then 
in the future, more and more cities will be, you know, in this, mm-hmm. in this situation as well. So it sort of doesn't make sense just because of the water availability we live with, but that's a thing. I mean, it's coming, I feel like. And, yeah. and um, so it, it makes sense that there would be leaders throughout the world that would need to communicate about this to, like you're saying, like look ahead and try to foresee what's happening so that if we can be proactive and prevent some of these things, that, that would be ideal. Sure, yeah, now you're looking at like population growth and, you know, rural, or rural to urban, you know, trends because as people leave rural communities and go to urban and that puts a stress on urban environments, you know, now not only how we look at science, that's almost like sociology or some other type of, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of science, but that's very important to, to help forecast those, those trends that, you know, the, the mayors or presidents or emperors or whoever is looking at it need to, need to look at. Now with a company like yours, you're looking uh, kind of the, the more of the short term, you're looking at, you know, runoff, things like that, not like long-term, but will, do you think that in the future that companies will have to look not only at the short term, but to look at subsidence? You know, you know, is the actual surface going to sink because too much is being pumped out? And uh, it, will we end up having to, do you think in your position, eventually you'll have to start pulling in more longer term variables? I don't know, because most of the work we do is in the Midwest, but I know that subsidence is a big issue out, mm-hmm. out West. Um, I, I would hope that those firms out West are looking at that. One thing I have discussed is um, we, we, we design based on the 10 year rainfall. So that it's a 10% chance of, of happening in any given year. And like I had said earlier, with, with the climate and climate changing, that those statistics are always changing too. And I'm, I wrote the point, I don't know if we could use the 10 year, if that will be good enough. You know, if we're, and I know that it may cost the, the customer more money, mm-hmm. but if they're building floods because climate change, yes. maybe they, maybe they should have paid 5% extra upfront to save 20% and a whole bunch of headaches down the road. Right. Yeah. You're, you're, you're kind of shooting at a moving target then if you're looking at that 10 years, yeah. that 10% thing, because yeah, those models are changing as, like you said, with climate change. We're seeing the, you know, more rainfall events, Mm -hmm. severe rainfall events in the last 10 years than in the, you know, the previous 50 before that type of thing. And so it's, yeah, that's a moving target. That's tough. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I'm advocating for stricter, a little bit stricter guidelines. I just, I just don't know if if it's enough. I, I don't have any, any real evidence besides my gut and just what I've observed um but I I would hope that you know we would consider bigger events well awesome thank you we appreciate your time this has been fun hopefully not too painful for you no it's good yeah thanks for having me I really enjoyed it thank you for listening to this episode of science from the experts from Purdue University superheroes of science if you like this episode subscribe give us a positive view and share the love Boiler up! Hammer down.